It's good to see all of you here this morning. Please join with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the opportunity to have gathered in worship, for the songs that we have sung, for the testimonies we have heard. We ask that at this moment, you will continue to speak to us through your word. We pray that you will challenge us, that you will encourage us, and above all, that you will transform us into the likeness of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this past Sunday, I had an opportunity to do something I've never done before, and I went to Martins Field and was invited to go up in someone's plane for the first time. This individual who invited me to essentially have a pastoral visit in the air uh, was not only a pilot, but an instructor. And so as instructors are apt to do, he instructed me about the plane. He took me around the outside. He showed me all of the things that the plane needed to be able to have a successful flight. And because he had been here last week and heard about my um, episode with the car, he said, we do not want any of that story being repeated with the plane. If you were not here last week, you will need to go and watch the sermon. But he wanted to make sure it was a a smooth flight. After we went around the plane, we went inside and we did a pre-flight check. And during the pre-flight check, he looked at one of the instruments that measured something important. I cannot remember what it was, but he said it was important. I trusted him. He said it was a few measures off, so he made some adjustments. And essentially, I found out that when you fly, you need to be precise. It's important. You have to be precise. Did you know, for example, that if we had taken off, not from Martins Field, but we had taken off from LAX, and we're flying from LAX to JFK, so LA to New York, and we had dipped the nose of the plane three and a half degrees south of where we were supposed to go, that that 2,800-mile flight, we would not end up in JFK, but we would end up in Washington. Just a three and a half degree difference. That's right. He looks up like, oh, that's a lot. And so although it seems like a small change in the direction, it has a large and profoundly different effect. And similarly, this morning, we're going to talk about how small habits in our life compound to have significant differences and effects in our life. James Clare, in his best-selling book, Atomic Habits, argues that we overestimate the importance of large defining moments, but then we underestimate the importance of small improvements and daily rhythms. So he says we overestimate large defining moments, but we underestimate small daily rhythms. In fact, Uh, thinking about this made me remember a time in my life where I had this the wrong way around. When I was nine years old, like most nine-year-olds, I wonder if we have any nine-year-olds in here. If you're nine, just put your hand up for me. You are not nine, Ken. I just saw someone who's definitely not nine put his hand up. All right, so when I was nine, I remember thinking, I need to be more healthy. I know you're thinking you're nine. Andreas, why do you need to be more healthy? Well, I decided I needed to listen to my parents who were constantly trying to get me to eat salad. So one day, uh, when they were upstairs, I decided to be healthy. I went and got an iceberg salad, and then I got some salad cream. You don't know what salad cream is. It's an awful invention that is in England. You don't need to have it. And I went and got salad cream and an iceberg lettuce. I put it all in a bowl, shredded it, 
and then dumped iceberg um, salad cream on it, and I ate that entire bowl. It was torturous. I hated it, but I ate it. And when I ate it, I felt absolutely vindicated that this act, this large act of eating salad, would last in perpetuity, and I would never need to eat salad again. And I didn't. For about five months, I did not eat any salad or anything even approximating something green and healthy because I had made one moment in my life where I ate salad. You're laughing because you know and you would tell your kids it's better to eat a small amount of salad every single day than to eat one large bowl of salad and not eat another one for six months. And we all, we all know this is true whether it comes to improving at the piano. You need to practice a little every single day. Whether it's losing weight, you need to exercise every single day. Whether it's building a business, you need to go to work and be diligent every day. Whether you are an NFL uh, quarterback and you are practicing how to do touchdowns and throw touchdowns well, you need to practice a little bit every single day. Even Dak knows that this is true. Whether it's earning the trust of your children or, ra- or training for a marathon, small, faithful rhythms and habits end up having large and profound effects. Even a 1% improvement every single day can make a difference. In his book, James Clare even gives us a helpful graph to see what it might look like to have small rhythms and small habits in our life. He posits that if you are able to do something every single day and actually see a 1% improvement over the course of a year, there is the likelihood that you could have up to a 37% improvement. And of course, it works well for his book because he is trying to give you value. And all of those who are scientists, those who look at data and already rubbing your chin thinking, well, I could poke holes in that theory. I think we can at least agree that if you do something consistently every single day, it will have a difference over a period of time. And today, as we end our series in the book of Daniel, we are coming to a narrative which shows us the importance of actually having small faithful rhythms that make us resilient and make a difference in our life. If you haven't been with us, and we're going to run through really quickly what we've been doing for the last uh, few weeks through the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, we have the story of these young men taken from Israel. They are dragged across a desert. They are deposited in Babylon, and then they end up in the king's court. When they end up in the king's court as slaves, they are tested at the king's table. And we left Daniel 1 with this, with this lesson. We learned that to flourish in Babylon, our kingdom identity must be stronger than our empire name. And then in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has this weird dream, absolutely weird, and he asks Daniel to interpret it for him. And so there's this moment of prophecy where Daniel tells him what's going to happen for the future. And it's a, it's a chapter that we're familiar with, but we looked at it a little differently, and we concluded in Daniel chapter 2 that divine revelation of God's future prophecy actually obligates us to a sacred responsibility of God's people. 
Prophecy is not a tool to exclude and to say, hey, we have this and therefore we can be smug and do nothing with it. But it's actually a challenge to have a sacred responsibility of the people that God loves. And then Daniel chapter 3 is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they have to go before this idol, and they have to bow before the idol. And because they don't, they are thrown into a fiery furnace. And through this important lesson, we notice a number of things. One of them was that worship, when it becomes weaponized, i.e. when people are forced against their conscience to do something they do not want to do, it becomes an existential crisis. It moves us to a moment of decision. And through Daniel chapter 3, we came away with this as our, uh, as our statement for Daniel chapter 3, that to thrive in Babylon, we must focus on the ultimate when we make decisions on the penultimate. And essentially, it's this idea that to be able to make good decisions, morally complex decisions in consequential moments, we must think about heaven so that we can make good decisions on earth. And then Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar becomes a beast. He is proud. He is full of himself, and he is humbled. And through Daniel chapter 4, we learn this important lesson, that to thrive in Babylon, we must use our power to help the oppressed. And remember that pride is plagiarism of God's goodness. We are only recipients of what God has given. None of us actually hold it in ourselves, and it's a lesson that we must remember if we are to thrive in this cultural moment. And then last week, we looked at Daniel chapter 5, where we switched from King Nebuchadnezzar, and all of a sudden, we have a new king on the block. And if you were here last week, we realized that King uh, Belshazzar, who comes, he is the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar, is essentially the technical term we use for him, a dude bro. We see him throwing a massive house party. We see his mom coming in and saying, listen, you need to listen to the prophet. You need to listen to your grandfather. And he doesn't listen to anyone. And then there's this episode where the writing comes on the wall and his life ends up uh, just going in directions he would have never, ever, ever hoped for. And what did we get last week in Daniel chapter 5? We learned that to thrive in Babylon, we must heed the voice of God and end the pursuit of our own kingdoms. And so, although this book is an ancient book, every single one of these lessons, I think, are prescient for us. Every single one of these lessons are applicable for those of us living in 2019. And now we are in the last chapter of the narrative portion of Daniel, because Daniel is split into essentially a narrative portion and then a prophetic, and we will be focusing only on the narrative for this series. So we are ending this series today. So Daniel chapter 6, if you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. We'll be there for the rest of the sermon. Daniel chapter 6 begins right where Daniel chapter 5 has ended. In Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar and his kingdom crumble. If you look at history, you find that the uh, Medes and the Persians come underneath the gate. They stop a flow of water. They come into the city. His father is exiled and he is killed. And so there is a change in who is in power. And King Darius is now in the ascendancy. Babylon has now fallen. Old Testament scholars Stefanovic and also Dukan tell us that this is probably happening around 538, maybe 539 BC. 
and the Persian Empire stretches from Egypt all the way to India, and Daniel is now an octogenarian. He is 85 years old, and he's having to serve in the palace of the king. And this is one of the things about the book of Daniel which is beautiful, because it takes the entire gamut of Daniel's life coming in probably around your age, as a high school senior or a junior, and now we are at the end of his life and he's around 85 years old, still serving faithfully. So this book really speaks to all of us. It's also interesting, and I want to make this point because it's a question I often had about Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 3, we have the three Hebrews who go into the fiery furnace, and I don't know about you, but I always wondered where was Daniel. Anyone ever wondered that? I always wondered, where was he? Like, did he just not, did he, did he just find a way to get out of it? You know, it's like, hey, Daniel, this is a mandatory work event. Everyone has to be there. And Daniel's like, oh, really? I have annual leave that day. I can't be there. What, where was he? And what you find is that the structure of Daniel chapter 3 and the structure of Daniel chapter 6 are very similar. The same phrases are repeated, the same words are employed. And it's as if the author is telling us that although Daniel was absent in Daniel chapter 3 and the Hebrew boys are absent in Daniel chapter 6, both of them would have been faithful because it was the exact same situation. It was being pushed to a moral decision where you had to capitulate either to Babylon or you had to be faithful to the kingdom of God. And so wherever Daniel was, this is not a mark against him, that he was trying to escape, that he was looking for a loophole, because this is the moment, like the Hebrews, where he has to make a decision, which is a mortal decision on his life. And so King Darius, like all of those who come into power, is assembling those who are going to flank him. And we read that he has governors and administrators who are in charge of different areas of Babylon. Above all of those, he has three people who are governing the other administrators. And then Daniel chapter 6 tells us, because Daniel is such an excellent person, that the king is thinking about above the um, large multitude of governors, above the three who are over the governors, to put Daniel as the very head. And of course, the governors and the administrators are livid. They don't want any of it. They are jealous they don't want Daniel to be given any uh, type of governance over them. And so here is Daniel, 85 years old, and I feel like there are so many lessons we can learn. I'm going to try and just be very pointed in the ones we pay attention to. But one of the things I think is important is Daniel gives us a way in which we can think about living in a time that can seem hyper-partisan. We can live in an age which seems um, hyper-political. We can live in an age that seems um, incredibly segregated and still be able to have a voice that speaks neither to the left nor to the right, but is able to speak clearly in the moment. You'll find all the way through the book of Daniel that Daniel never once becomes a chaplain of the empire, but Daniel consistently is a prophet for the kingdom. And it's, it's, it's a it's a very important distinction. Daniel does not allow himself to be co-opted by the ways of the empire, 
He doesn't blindly, in my opinion, if I was reading this, he's not blindly following someone just because they are blue or because they are red. Daniel is not a chaplain for either side. He is not a partisan person. He isn't. In fact, Daniel is always able to somehow not to be a mouthpiece of Babylon, whether it was King Nebuchadnezzar, whether it's King Belshazzar, whether it's Darius, he is never a mouthpiece parroting the same talking points that they would have. Daniel thinks for himself. And so I think Daniel gives me and you a challenge living in 2019, living in the United States, a way in which we can exist and flourish and be faithful to God And that way means we need to keep our unique prophetic voice and speak with distinction and integrity when the empire does things that go against what God wants. And Daniel does this, even though he could really just have kicked back. Daniel is a few years from retirement. You know, he's ascended to the C-suite. He's gone through all the VP positions. Daniel is doing well. He's just a couple of years away from getting the gold watch, a set of golf clubs, a great, you know, goodbye party, and like, oh, good job, Daniel, 50 years, service with distinction. And yet, he does not allow the, the length of his service. He does not allow the fact that he has cultivated relationships to blunt the force of his prophetic voice. For Daniel, when he was in service, he always had a different rubric that he operated through. I think for Daniel, you find over and over again that even while he was in the halls of power, the way that he marked his life was to live faithfully rather than to chase success. Daniel always wanted to be faithful rather than to chase success. And it reminds me of a story of former U.S. Senator Mark Hatfield, who tells of a story when he was touring Calcutta with Mother Teresa. And so he's with this um, uh, incredible woman who, by this point in her life, she's bent over, she's, she's racked with pain, and they go to a place called the House of the Dying, right? Does not sound like a place you would willingly go, but they go there. They go to the house of the dying and they go uh, to this place where kids who have terminal diseases, terminal illnesses are sent to die, or who've just been picked up off the street, abandoned, are sent to die. And so Senator Mark Hatfield is with, um, with Mother Teresa and he's looking at this grinding poverty. He's looking at this just terrible suffering and pain that the children are going through. And he says to Mother Teresa, how can you bear the load? How are you able to bear it without being crushed beneath it? And Mother Teresa looks at Senator Mark Hatfield and she responds in this way to his question. She says, my dear Senator, I am not called to be successful. I am called to be faithful. And it seems to me that Daniel, in the way in which he lived his life, always understood that God's primary call to him was to be faithful, not to seek success. And just living in this type of posture would make every single person who is sitting here countercultural. It would make you different to the people who have plotted the chart of their life so that they can be a successful as famous, as rich, as consequential as they can, who make decisions according to how good it will make them look, how how much it will further their career. Daniel never does this. 
Every single time Daniel makes a decision in the book of Daniel, to me, it's like, that's dumb. Daniel, that's just silly. Just eat the food, Daniel. You're not in Jerusalem. You can't get kosher food. Eat the food. What do you mean, Daniel? Uh, or, or the Hebrew boys. Just, just bow. Just pretend you're going to bow. Just, I mean, you, you have so much power. Imagine the good you could do if you continue to just pretend you're worshiping, but then God can use you to save the lives of other people. Or Daniel, don't tell him that he's going to eat grass. Just be like, hey, there's a tree. You're the tree. It's going to be good because when he eats grass, he's not going to know you didn't say the right thing. Come on, Daniel, be smart. And yet Daniel never makes decisions with his success in mind, but always the faithfulness that God has called him to. Daniel pursues a life toward faithfulness. He is ready, even if it means to lose cultural capital, to lose social standing, to lose position, to lose power, to lose privilege. Daniel wants to be faithful rather than to pursue success. He always takes the road less traveled. And as people who profess to be prophetic, as people for whom Daniel, the book of Daniel is just the epicenter of how we frame our view of the world. Often we will look at the prophetic and we'll have our dates and our times and our charts, but we will miss the moral challenges that Daniel gives to us as people who claim to, to speak in the same tradition as a prophetic voice and life of Daniel. And then Daniel chapter 6, if you were there with me, Daniel 6, verse 6, these crafty uh, administrators come to the king because they know that Daniel cannot be swayed. And it says, so these governors and satraps thronged before the king, and the word there is interesting, it's more like a, a brawl. They are literally like tripping over themselves to get to the king so they can bring bad news about Daniel. Daniel 6 and so they come to the king and they said to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdoms and the administrators and the satraps, the counselors and the advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statue and to make a firm decree. Man, this is just hilarious to me. You know, they're just a bunch of sniveling sycophants and they're just lying. All of us have said, you know, you can tell if, you, if you're in management, when someone comes in, they're like, oh, everybody is saying this. Your antennas will immediately go up. Like, really? Everybody? You've done a straw poll of everyone, and everyone believes what you're going to tell me. How beautiful. And so they come to the king. They say, all of us have said that you should make a firm decree and that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter it. Therefore, King Darius's ego won and he signed the written decree. And as you know from the book of Esther, when the Medes and the Persians make a law, it cannot be changed. And so here is Daniel with a decision to make. And, and listen to how Daniel responds in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, when he finds his life is now in mortal danger. It says, now when Daniel knew 
that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since those early days. What is your first response when you are under stress? What is your first impulse when you are in mortal danger? What do you do when you feel like you've reached the end of the rope? Where do you go first? This is the question which jumps out at me from this entire book. If you haven't read the book before, you heard it from the scripture reading. This is a spoiler alert. Daniel goes in the lion's den. They don't eat him. He comes out. It's just not that important for today. What grabs me is verse 10. After he finds out that his entire life is potentially about to unravel, this is what Daniel does. We're not told about Daniel's family. We don't know if Daniel has wife and kids at home waiting for dad to come back. We don't know the position that Daniel may have of influence. We don't know the people's lives he may be protecting because of the power he has been given. But when he comes to a moment of consequence, Daniel does not go to the king. Instead, he goes to God. He turns to the daily rhythms, habits, and disciplines that he has cultivated since he was young. And this is why I think the story that was told of this young lady and her mom calling her like, hey, are you praying? Are you reading your Bible? It was a great story because you have the opportunity right now, like Daniel, because the book starts with Daniel literally being a junior or, uh, or a um, senior in high school, cultivating habits and rhythms that allow him to make good decisions. And if I was to let you into a secret, the secret of Daniel is that Daniel is not a hero. Daniel is not a hero. Daniel is a saint. And you're probably thinking, yeah, I can't be either of those. Okay, let me help you here. Daniel is not a hero because he doesn't have to make massive choices that you think, I could never make that choice. If someone was to put a gun to my head and say, oh, make this choice, I would never do it. Here's the good news. This is not what Daniel does. What the Bible tells us Daniel does is he does a small action. It's this 1% rule. For the, for, since he was young, Daniel, every single day, would have a small habit of faithfulness in his life. So when a large decision came before him, he was naturally able to respond without having to act like a hero. And for Daniel living in Babylon, because he's cultivated these habits, these practices, Daniel actually is able to make decisions in his life without any problems, with no problems whatsoever. He goes and he prays to God because his entire life has been formed by a different rhythm. It's about rhythms. So he's in Babylon. There's a rhythm where you follow the loudest voice. There's a rhythm where the person who has the most power gets to tell you what to do. There's a rhythm where everyone goes in this direction. And Daniel always lives his life not to the rhythm of the empire, but to the beat of the kingdom. He lives in a different time, although he exists in Babylon. And interestingly, I think for us, the temptation we would uh, face because we are not facing persecution here in the States 
is a temptation rather to fashion and to culture rather than it is to persecution. That is, I think, more of a pressing claim in our life. When we have to make a decision, often the decision is made based on, is this going to be awkward? Am I going to look weird? Am I going to lose friends? And we make decisions based on keeping our social capital rather than faithfulness to God. And Daniel shows us every single time that we cannot blindly follow the cultural moment, but we have to have a higher rubric when we make a decision. Daniel is more concerned with moral compromise against God than mortal danger against his life. It's back to this thing that Mother Teresa says, that all of us who are living in an age where the culture moves us, where the culture pushes us to water down, to devalue the claims and the justice of the kingdom of God, that we must be more concerned with God's faithfulness than with our own reputation. Nobody wakes up one day and says, Kuku, I'm either going to get killed or make a moral compromise. Nobody does that, and neither does Daniel. In fact, Daniel keeps habits that help him to get to that moment. I remember, you know, just a few weeks ago, speaking with a student. A student came, and we were talking, and, and he asked um, about how he might be able to uh, grow in his relationship with God. So we're talking about this. You know, you're at Walla Walla. You're trying to figure out, how do I grow my relationship with God? And we spoke about some baby steps he might be able to take. And one of those baby steps we spoke about was um, what he does when he wakes up in the morning. Habits, rhythms. I said, I don't know about you, but it's easy when I wake up in the morning uh, to make a decision. And that decision is to pick up my phone. That's that's the first thing I'm going to do when I wake up. I pick up my phone. It's already got things buzzing. It's it's already... um, calling for my attention, I said to him, why don't you try to sleep with your phone out of arm's length? In another room, you're in a dorm, it's not going to work. Your phone would not be there if you leave it in the corridor. Ah, it will, it will. We have great students here at Walla Walla. Just keep your phone in your room, but just make sure you can't reach it when you wake up. He goes, okay. And so he tries that. And he, he has to take these baby steps so that he can develop different rhythms, so that he can hear the voice of God clearly, so he can, he can come to the, to the call of Christ in his life when he's trying to figure out, how do I navigate my relationship with my girlfriend? How do I make a decision about what I'm going to do when I'm done? How do I interact with my friends and with my family? What do I do with who God has created me to be? He needs to be able to hear God's voice clearly because there is so much noise. And so this is why it's important to have daily rhythms and habits that will come and will give us rhythms of resilience. And it's interesting because Daniel, we're told, prays three times a day. And this was actually not, this was not an official 
posture of Jews when they were in exile. But, ex- but scholars think that he was praying three times a day because he was remembering that in Jerusalem they would have had a morning and an afternoon and an evening sacrifice. He would have faced the west towards Jerusalem, not because Jerusalem um, kept the power of God, but because it reminded him that he was an exile and that his true home was Jerusalem. So every day he would go up to the roof of his house and he would pray facing Jerusalem, remembering the morning, remembering the afternoon, remembering the evening sacrifice. And so Daniel's rhythm of resilience was to pray. And this, I think, became a keystone habit. And this idea of keystone habits is first introduced to us in Charles uh, Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit. And Duhigg says about keystone habits that they are small changes or habits that people introduce into their routines that unintentionally carry over into other aspects of their life. And so you start your day in a way that it has a domino effect on the rest of what you're going to do. You start as you mean to go on. And Daniel, in praying three times a day, is developing and had developed a keystone habit that would allow him to flourish in Babylon. Because to flourish in Babylon, we must engage in small, faithful rhythms that give us resilience for large, faith-filled lives. And this, the first part of this statement is probably the most important, small, faithful rhythms. It's like spending time with God intentionally in prayer. It's like what happened with my wife a few weeks ago. You know, so when we came here to Walla Walla, we were told about one of the menaces of this place. I mean, this is a beautiful place. We know there's rolling hills. There's, you know, lots of space. It's just gorgeous, right? Being in Walla Walla is good for your soul. It's deep breaths of clean air. But there was something sinister about this place that we had been warned. And we thought, people are exaggerating. I mean, we heard that there was a moose on campus once, but come on. How bad can this place be? And then a few weeks ago, it happened. I woke up, I looked out of my window, and I thought someone had put a sheet of paper over my window. It was fog, fog apocalypse. Came out, was driving, had maybe two or three feet of visibility. I'm thinking, surely it's going to burn up. By the afternoon, I'll be able to see. No, the fog was there the entire time, and it's winter. And so now the sun is setting at like 2.57. No, it's not, but it feels like it. Awful. You know, you are going to school. You're having papers. You're having exams. You're dragging. You don't want to see your friends. You don't want to get out of bed. You just feel terrible. Not enough light, too much fog, and it becomes difficult. And so my wife felt like she was dragging. She's just dragging. And she bumped into someone who gave her the secret sauce. They said, listen, this is how you beat it you need to get light therapy. She's like, what? Light therapy, get light therapy. Goes on Amazon, boom, prime. Two days later, we have a lamp, a happy lamp. It's supposed to help you feel so much better. So my wife gets it. She has it right next to our bed. She wakes up, turns it on. Just 30 minutes a day is supposed to be sufficient. After the first day, I'm like, babe, how was it? Do you feel better? She's like, no, I don't feel any different. I was like, cool, cool. Okay, day two. She puts it on, 30 minutes. Babe, how do you feel? 
I don't feel any better. Day three, she wakes up. I look at her face. I know she's not feeling any better. She's still dragging. Day four, day five, it's not making a difference. And then she gets to day seven or eight, and all of a sudden, this small rhythm and habit she had put inside uh, of her timetable, of her life, started to make a difference. And I said, how are you feeling, babe? She's like, oh, I feel actually better. I said, really? She goes, yeah, I actually feel better. And I realized that this light therapy, if, if you remember nothing else, that Daniel 6 is like light therapy, that Daniel 6.10 with him praying rhythmically, with him having this habit which gives him resiliency, which buoys him up, is like light therapy. You right now may be going through aridity in your life. You may be going through a stage in your life where the voice of God is becoming muted, where because of stress, because of busyness, because of some deep things you are struggling with, you feel it's difficult to even connect with God. And yet, if I was to give you advice based on how to flourish in Babylon, it would be to have one small, faithful rhythm that you adopt into your life. It may be that when you wake up, if you, you, if you do have you version on your phone, you don't swipe left and get rid of it. It may be that you set an alarm at 12 where you have a 10-minute check-in with God. It may be that before you sleep, uh, you make a decision after 9 p.m. that you're going to be a digital-free zone so you can get to sleep and you can have time to meditate on the goodness of God. And you know what? Day one, probably not going to make a difference. You're probably not going to have angelic choirs breaking into your room. You're not going to have Gabriel like sitting next to you on your bed whispering, saying, hey, how are you doing, buddy? It's a good day, isn't it? No, it's probably not going to happen. But if you keep doing it, if you have these small faithful rhythms, then they will grow to give you resilience to live large faith-filled lives. If you make the decision that you will commit the, the um, kingdom of God first, that you will come to Christ, that you will learn of him and his beauty on a daily basis, then it's like light therapy. It's like sitting in front of light and having your soul cleansed and renewed and restored. And these small changes will help you when it's bleak and it's dark and you finish class and you have to grab a meal and then go out for a lab or have additional tutoring and you just don't feel like going on. These rhythms and habits will help you to have days that will be different. To flourish, we must engage in these small rhythms. And this afternoon, as I think about the students who are here on campus, as I look at Wava, who gave us such wonderful music, you all sound amazing, by the way. They are digital natives. They have never not known a time where they could have the wisdom of the entire universe in their Lululemon pants as they are running. They have never not known a time where they are able to pull up any information that they want and it's become difficult to then have small faithful rhythms that help us to make large, consequential, faith-filled decisions. 
for millennials and for Generation Z, the place of exile, according to researcher David Kinnaman in his new book, Faith for Exiles, has now become the unfettered access that they have to digital information at their fingertips. His research shows us that even by conservative estimates, Young people from the ages of 13 to 20, uh, excuse me, from 15 to 23 in America spend 20 times more per year using screen-driven content than engaging with spiritual material. 20 times. Okay, this sounds awful, because it is. But there is a silver lining. This is just the general population. If you look at people who go to church on a regular basis, regular church attendance decreases it so that they only engage with social media-driven content 10 times more than they do with spiritual content. Right, it's still terrible. And yet this is the, this is the Babylon, the digital world in which they find themselves. And if you are in that category, then know that you don't need to be a superhero, you don't need to go cold turkey, you don't need to smash your phone, you don't need to throw it into a river, you don't need to become a monk and only send letters to people, but you can make a decision to develop small rhythms and habits that will attune your ear to the voice of God. You can make decisions. In fact, after the first service, I had a uh, student who came up to me and said, well, you know, so I've been trying that, it doesn't seem to be working, what's your advice? I said, listen, um, you might need to change things up. If you have been doing it and you are bored out of your brains, change the version you are reading. There, there are no holy versions. Find one you can read. Maybe start journaling if you've never journaled. Friends, I did not journal. My wife has got an entire room full of journals that she has filled out in her life. <laughs> but in January, feeling some aridity and dryness in my life, I started a new rhythm. So I started to journal. There are some of you for whom walking and talking is the time you're able to connect best with God. Do that. There are others who just need quiet because you have a house full of like four or five kids who constantly need you. Task your spouse to take care of them. Have some time where you can just sit and be quiet and to meditate. We need to find rhythms that are going to help us to live faith-filled lives. And I believe that if we can do that as an individual, as individuals, as a collective group, this church can be a force for good, not just in this valley, but through the world. To have people who have so shaped their lives that like Daniel, when moral crisis happens in society, people will turn to the Walla Walla University Church and say, there are clear-eyed people who are not just chaplains of the empire, but who are prophets of the kingdom. There are courageous people who, because of their rhythms and their habits, are able to see the moments in which we're in and speak clearly to it. There are people here who love Jesus so much, not because they're heroes, not because they are super saiyans, but because they are just following God and they are orienting their life around him. And that is our prayer for you. And as we come to the close of Daniel I pray that each of you will see in the life of Daniel, in the lessons that we have learned, that we are called even in this moment to live faithful and resilient lives for the King of Kings.